Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story. The Adventure of the Priory School by Arthur Conan Doyle When the nobleman and his secretary had left, my friend flung himself at once with characteristic eagerness into the investigation. The boy's chamber was carefully examined and yielded nothing save the absolute conviction that it was only through the window that he could have escaped. The German master's room and effects gave no further clue. In his case, a trailer of ivy had given way under its weight, and we saw by the light of the lantern the mark on the lawn where his heels had come down. That one dint in the short green grass was the only material witness left of this inexplicable nocturnal flight. Sherlock Holmes left the house alone and only returned after eleven. He had obtained a large ordnance map of the neighborhood, and this he brought into my room, where he laid it out on the bed and having balanced the lamp in the middle of it, he began to smoke over it, and occasionally to point out objects of interest with the reeking amber of his pipe. "'This case grows upon me, Watson,' said he. "'There are decidedly some points of interest in connection with it. "'In this early stage I want you to realize these geographical features, "'which may have a good deal to do with our investigation. "'Look at this map.' This dark square is the Priory School. I'll put a pin in it. Now, this line is the main road. You see that it runs east and west past the school. And you see that there also is no side road for a mile either way. If these two folk passed away by road, it was this road. Exactly. By a singular and happy chance, we are able, to some extent, to check what passed along this road during the night in question. At this point, where my pipe is now resting, a country constable was on duty from twelve to six. It is, as you perceive, the first crossroad on the east side. This man declares that he was not absent from his post for an instant, and he is positive that neither boy nor Anne could have gone that way unseen. I've spoken with this policeman tonight, and he appears to be, to be a perfectly reliable person. That blocks this end. We now have to deal with the other. There's an inn here, the Red Bull, the landlady of which was ill. She had sent to Mackleton for a doctor, but he did not arrive until morning, being absent at another case. The people at the inn were alert all night, awaiting his coming and one or either of them seems to have continually had an eye upon that road. They declare that no one passed. If their evidence is good, then we are fortunate enough to be able to block the West, and also to be able to say that the fugitives did not use the road at all. But the bicycle, I objected. Quite so. We will come to the bicycle presently. To continue our reasoning, if these people did not go by the road, they must have traversed the country to the north of the house or to the south of the house. That is certain. Let us weigh the one against the other. 
On the south of the house is, as you perceive, on the south of the house is, as you perceive, a large district of arable land caught up into small fields with stone walls between them. There, I admit that a bicycle is impossible. We can dismiss the idea. We turn to the country on the north. Here there lies a grove of trees marked as the Ragged Shaw, and on the farther side stretches a great rolling moor, Lower Gilmore, extending for ten miles and sloping gradually upwards. Here, at one side of this wilderness, is Holderness Hall, ten miles by road, but only six across the moor. It is a peculiarly desolate plain. A few more farmers have small holdings where they rear sheep and cattle. Except these, the Plover and the Curlew are the only inhabitants until you come to the Chesterfield High Road. There's a church there, you see, a few cottages and an inn. Beyond that, the hills become precipitous. Surely it is here to the north that our quest must lie. But the bicycle, I persisted. Well, well, said Holmes impatiently. A good cyclist does not need a high road. The moors intersected with paths, and the moon was at the full. Hello, what is this? There was an agitated knock at the door, and an instant afterwards Dr. Huxtable was in the room. In his hand he held a blue cricket cap with a white chevron on the peak. At last we have a clue, he cried. Thank heaven! At least we are on the dear boy's track. It is his cap. Where was it found? In the van of the gypsies who camped on the moor. They left on Tuesday. Today the police traced them down and examined their caravan. This was found. How do they account for it? They shuffled and lied, said that they found it on the moor on Tuesday morning. They know where he is, the rascals. Thank goodness they are all safe under lock and key. Either the fear of the law or the Duke's purse will certainly get out of them all that they know. So far so good, said Holmes, when the doctor had at last left the room. It at least bears out the theory that it is on the side of the lower Gilmore that we must hope for results. The police have really done nothing locally save the arrest of these guys. Look here, Watson. There's a watercourse across the moor. You see it marked here in the map. In some parts it widens into a morris. This is particularly so in the region between Holderness Hall and the school. It is vain to look elsewhere for tracks in this dry weather, but at that point there is certainly a chance of some record being left. I will call you early tomorrow morning, and you and I will try if we can throw some light on this mystery. The day was just breaking when I woke to find the long, thin form of Holmes by my bedside. He was fully dressed and had apparently already been out. I have done the lawn and the bicycle shed, said he. I have also had a ramble through the ragged shawl. Now, Watson, there is cocoa ready in the next room. I must beg you to hurry, for we have a great day before us. His eyes shone, and his cheek was flushed with the exhilaration of the master workman who sees his work lie ready before him. A very different Holmes, this active alert man, from the introspective and pallid dreamer of Baker Street. I felt, as I looked upon that supple figure, alive with nervous energy, that it was indeed a strenuous day that awaited us. 
and yet it opened in the blackest disappointment. With high hopes, we struck across the peaty, russet moor, intersected with a thousand sheep paths until we came to the broad, light green belt which marked the morass between us and Holderness. Certainly, if the lad had gone homewards, he must have passed this, and could not pass it without leaving his traces. But no sign of him or the German could be seen. With a darkening face, my friend strode along the margin, eagerly observant of every muddy stain upon the mossy surface. Sheep marks there were in profusion, and at one place, some miles down, cows had left their tracks. Nothing more. Check number one, said Holmes, looking gloomily over the rolling expanse of the moor. There's another morass down yonder and a narrow neck between. Hello, hello, hello! What have we here? We had come on a small black ribbon of pathway. In the middle of it, clearly marked on the sodden soil, was the track of a bicycle. Hurrah! I cried. We have it! But Holmes was shaking his head, and his face was puzzled and expectant rather than joyous. A bicycle, certainly, but not the bicycle, he said. I am familiar with 42 different impressions left by tires. This, as you perceive, is a Dunlop with a patch upon the outer cover. Heidegger's tires were palmers, leaving longitudinal stripes. Aveling, the mathematical master, was sure upon the point. Therefore, it is not Heidegger's track. The boys, then. Possibly, if we could prove a bicycle to have been in his possession. But this we have utterly failed to do. This track, as you perceive, was made by a rider who was going from the direction of the school. Or towards it. No, no, my dear Watson. The more deeply sunk impression is, of course, a hind wheel upon which the weight rests. You perceive several places where it has passed across and obliterated the more shallow mark of the front one. It was undoubtedly heading away from the school. It may or may not be connected with our inquiry, but we will follow it backwards before we go any farther. We did so, and at the end of a few hundred yards lost the tracks as we emerged from the boggy portion of the moor. Following the path backwards, we picked out another spot where a spring trickled across it. Here, once again, was the mark of the bicycle, though nearly obliterated by the hoofs of cows. After that, there was no sign, but the path ran right on into Ragged Shaw, the wood which backed on to the school. From this wood, the cycle must have emerged. Holmes sat down on a boulder and rested his chin in his hands. I had smoked two cigarettes before he moved. Well, well, said he at last. It is, of course, possible that a cunning man might change the tire of his bicycle in order to leave unfamiliar tracks. A criminal who is capable of such a thought is a man whom I should be proud to do business with. We shall leave this question undecided and hark back to our morass again, for we have left a good deal unexplored. We continued our systematic survey of the edge of the sodden portion of the moor, and soon our perseverance was gloriously rewarded. Right across the lower part of the bog lay a miry path, Holmes gave a cry of delight as he approached it. An impression like a fine bundle of telegraph wires ran down the center of it. It was the Palmer tire. 
Here is Herr Heidegger, sure enough, cried Holmes exultantly. My reasoning seems to have been pretty sound, Watson. I congratulate you. But we have a long way still to go. Kindly walk clear the path. Now, let us follow the trail. I fear that it will not lead very far. We found, however, as we advanced, that this portion of the moor is intersected with soft patches, and though we frequently lost sight of the track, we always succeeded in picking it up once more. Do you observe, said Holmes, that the rider is now undoubtedly forcing the pace? There can be no doubt of it. Look at this impression where you get both tires clear. The one is as deep as the other. That can only mean that the rider is throwing his weight onto the handlebar, as a man does when he is printing. By Jove, he has had a fall. There was a broad, irregular smudge covering some yards of the track. Then there were a few footmarks and the tire reappeared once more. A side slip, I suggested. Holmes held up a crumpled branch of flowering gorse. To my horror, I perceived that the yellow blossoms were all dabbled with crimson. On the path, too, and among the heather were dark stains of clotted blood. Bad, said Holmes, bad. Stand clear, Watson. Not an unnecessary footstep. What do I read here? He fell wounded. He stood up. He remounted. He proceeded. But there is no other track. Cattle on this side path. He was surely not gored by a bull. Impossible. But I see no traces of anyone else. We must push on, Watson. Surely with stains as well as the track to guide us, he cannot escape us now. Our search was not a very long one. The tracks of the tire began to curve fantastically upon the wet and shining path. Suddenly, as I looked ahead, a gleam of metal caught my eye from amid the thick gorse bushes. Out of them we dragged a bicycle, Palmer tired. One pedal bent, and the whole front of it horribly smeared and slobbered with blood. On the other side of the bushes a shoe was projecting. We ran round, and there lay the unfortunate rider. It was a tall man, full-bearded with spectacles, one glass of which had been knocked out. The cause of his death was a frightful blow upon the head, which had crushed in part of his skull. That he could have gone on after receiving such an injury said much for the vitality and courage of the man. He wore shoes but no socks, and his open coat disclosed a nightshirt beneath it. It was undoubtedly the German master. Holmes turned the body over reverently and examined it with great attention. He then sat in deep thought for a time, and I could see by his ruffled brow that this grim discovery had not, in his opinion, advanced us much in our inquiry. It's a little difficult to know what to do, Watson, said he at last. My own inclinations are to push this inquiry on, for we have already lost so much time that we cannot afford to waste another hour. On the other hand, we are bound to inform the police of this discovery, and to see that this poor fellow's body is looked after. I could take a note back, but I need your company and assistance. Wait a bit. There's a fellow cutting peat up yonder. Bring him over here and he will guide the police. I brought the peasant across, and Holmes dispatched the frightened man with a note to Dr. Huxtable. 
Now, Watson, said he, we have picked up two clues this morning. One is the bicycle with the Palmer tire, and we see what that has led us to. The other is the bicycle with the patched Dunlop. Before we start to investigate that, let us try to realize what we do know so as to make the most of it and to separate the essential from the accidental. First of all, I wish to impress upon you that the boy certainly left of his own free will. He got down from his window and he went off either alone or with someone. That is sure. I assented. Well now, let us turn to this unfortunate German master. The boy was fully dressed when he fled. Therefore, he foresaw what he would do. But the German went without his socks. He certainly acted on very short notice. Undoubtedly. Why did he go? Because from his bedroom window, he saw the flight of the boy. Because he wished to overtake him and bring him back. He seized his bicycle, pursued the lad, and in pursuing him, met his death. So it would seem. Now I come to the critical part of my argument. The natural action of a man pursuing a little boy would be to run after him. He would know that he would overtake him. But the German does not do so. He turns to his bicycle. I am told that he was an excellent cyclist. He would not do this if he did not see that the boy had some swift means of escape. The other bicycle. Let us continue our reconstruction. He meets his death five miles from the school. Not by a bullet, mark you, which even a lad might conceivably discharge, but by a savage blow dealt by a vigorous arm. The lad, then, had a companion in his flight. And the flight was a swift one, since it took five miles before an expert cyclist could overtake them. Yet we survey the ground round the scene of the tragedy. What do we find? A few cattle tracks, nothing more. I took a wide sweep round, and there is no path within fifty yards. Another cyclist could have nothing to do with the actual murder, nor are there any human footmarks. Holmes, I cried, this is impossible. Admirable, he said. A most illuminating remark. It is impossible as I state it, and therefore I must in some respect have stated it wrong. Yet you saw for yourself. Can you suggest any fallacy? He could not have fractured his skull in a fall. In a morass, Watson. I am at my wit's end. Tut, tut. We have solved some worse problems. At least we have plenty of material if we can only use it. Come then, and having exhausted the palmer, let us see what the Dunlop, what the patched cover, has to offer us. We picked up the track and followed it onwards for some distance, but soon the moor rose into a long heather tufted curve, and we left the watercourse behind us. No further help from tracks could be hoped for. At the spot where we saw the last of the Dunlop tire, it might equally have led to Holdenus Hall, the stately towers of which rose some miles to our left or to a low grey village which lay in front of us, and marked the position of the Chesterfield High Road. As we approached the forbidding and squalid inn, with a sign of a gamecock above the door, Holmes gave a sudden groan and clutched me by the shoulder to save himself from falling. He had had one of those violent strains of the ankle, 
which leave a man helpless. With difficulty, he limped up to the door, where a squat, elderly man was smoking a black clay pipe. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories to feature on the podcast. You can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of selected stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash Bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>